0: Morning Christian Fellowship Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. if you're a guest with us, a special thank you to you for finding your way, however you did, to uh, our church. We are walking through the book of numbers, and as we walk through the book of numbers, it's like we're on a mountain trek, but that, that trek up the mountain didn't start in numbers in, in uh, Romans 1. It started in numbers. It started in every book before that. When you read through uh, commentators, when you read what people have written about Romans 3, where we're going to be today, uh, when you you see how preachers have handled Romans 3, it's not really much of an exaggeration to think of all of Scripture as a mountain. When you get to the New Testament, you get past the tundra, you get into the clearing, you can see a little better in the New Testament. It's not that the Old Testament was bad, it's that the Old Testament was leading toward this clearer representation of what God is communicating. And then the peak at the top is the book of Romans. And when you finally get to the top of the peak and you find that piece of metal stamped at the top, with the stamp on top of that metal, if you've ever been at a peak uh, where it gives you how many feet uh, tall the, the mountain peak is, the name of the mountain, that stamp is Romans 3. And as we get into Romans 3 this morning, I think it's important for us to understand how this is relevant to us because Paul is talking about Jews Gentiles, in judgment. Jews, Gentiles, in judgment. That's the topic, right? And for many of us, as we read there, we're like, hmm, interesting about the Jews, interesting about the Gentiles. Where are we in all of this? And what I tried to crack open last time, and this is important because we're going to dive into Romans 3, and without this framework, I think it's going to be difficult to really ingest what's going on in Romans 3. The Jews, what What was particular about the Jews was not their ethnicity. What was particular about the Jews was not even their tradition. What was particular about the Jews was that they had insider knowledge. They had the inside scoop, which was the Old Testament. Everybody didn't have the Old Testament. Everybody didn't have access to God's very words. Everybody didn't get to read Psalms in the morning. Everybody didn't get to gather together and hear the book of Ezra read and proclaimed and taught and unpacked right? Attributes of this God that created everything. What is he actually like? What are the specifics? The Jews had that. The Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles only had nature. They had to deduce from nature, mountains, trees, birds, design. Somebody up there, out there has created this that is over us, bigger than us, smarter than us, to whom we're responsible. Somebody who's divine and powerful. This is what we got in Romans 1. So it's not that the Gentiles knew nothing, but they, they were outsiders to specific knowledge about God. The Jews were insiders to specific knowledge about God. Now today, we've got people who didn't grow up in church. If you said, uh, turn in a Bible to the book of Matthew, they'd be like, what's a Bible? Not where's Matthew. There's still uh, a grand swath of people in this world that are just biblically ignorant or biblically illiterate. They don't know. Uh, what God has specifically communicated. Then there are other people that are like insiders because they've grown up in it. Your mom and dad sat you at the dinner table and taught you Scripture. Uh, You went to Awana or Sunday school, or I think I only got one fellow AG person up in here uh, in terms of background, but Royal Rangers. You didn't go to Boy Scouts. You went to Royal Rangers, and you memorized Scripture. You're exposed to Scripture in a way where the Boy Scouts aren't, It's insider knowledge, which is a great privilege. And what Paul is doing when he speaks to the inside group, the people that have the knowledge, he tells them, you're no better off for having that knowledge. And they're like, what? What's the point? What's the point then? You might be a parent or a grandparent who raised your kid in the church, and then that kid went off and and just went off the rails, and you're like, what's the point? What was the point of bringing them up in church? You've been dragging your spouse to church for a decade, and that spouse still hasn't been converted. That spouse still, they they just acquiesce to coming because they want to save the marriage and you know that church is important to you. And maybe after a decade, you're like, what what is the point? What is the point of bringing them to church if if they're still not saved? Those are the kinds of questions that Romans 3 is addressing. We don't want to go, well, I'm not in this whole Jew-Gentile debate, so I guess this has nothing to do with me. Oh, it has very much to do with you. Because Paul's point is Jew and Gentile, however the differences, uh, however stark the differences between the two groups, insider knowledge, outsider knowledge, they both have the same problem, judgment. And so whatever your background, whether you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church, whether you have memorized Scripture, don't memorize Scripture, you know what a Bible is, you don't know what a Bible is, you know if, I, if we say turn to Matthew, you know where that is, you don't know where that is. At the end of the day there's still judgment. And so the good news is not learn more stuff because you can learn stuff and still be lost. That's as relevant a sermon as you're ever going to hear in this place. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 continues where he left off. Paul didn't originally write it in chapters. It's a letter, and he's just going. Um... And we're going to look at all of chapter 3 today, and <laughs> I think every preacher that I've ever respected has not gone this quickly through the book, but my concern was if we, if we just dwell on a couple of sentences each week, four years from now, we're still in Romans 4, we lose sense of the argument. I, I want you to track with his argument, and his argument is whether you're an insider to God's specific knowledge or an outsider to God's specific knowledge, judgment is still for you. So we're going to not fly at... You know, thirty thousand feet, and do Romans in one sermon, but I don't want to land the plane, get out, and the, just one blade of grass at a time either. So we're going to kind of go medium, and we're going to do Romans three today. Next week, Romans four. And he starts out this section imagining that he's arguing with somebody. Okay, we do this like when you when 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 after a sports game, somebody's being interviewed. And they're like, you know, why did you put that picture in at that moment? Why did you, like, why did you pull the other picture was doing really well? Well, look, look, I mean, do, do I have a habit of p- putting pictures in? Yes. Um, do I think we always have to ch- switch pictures? No. What is, he, what is that person doing there? He's imagining someone debating with himself, right? He's not crazy. It's a rhetorical uh, way of getting the point across. And Paul does that with five questions at the top of, chapter 3. It's not that someone's literally asking him these questions. He's using it as a way to try to get you to the point that he's getting at. The first question is in the first two verses. Take a look. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? His first answer is yes, there is an advantage. Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Let's pause there, because that's the first question and answer, okay? And the question is, if we're all going to be judged anyway, we just came out of that in chapter 2, whether you had insider knowledge or you didn't, whether you had the Old Testament or you didn't, whether you kept traditions or you didn't, whether you were circumcised or you weren't, in our case, if you're baptized, if, what if you, you know, were baptized, what if you took communion, and uh, are, the, are those things for nothing? He's like, no, 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 those things aren't for nothing, he's telling the Jew, There's great advantage to that. Now, when he says to begin with, I don't know if you've ever read Romans 3 before. I'm waiting for him to give the rest of the list. You know, first, this, and then second, here's a bunch of reasons. But he doesn't. I think the, uh, well, the, the Greek behind to begin with is first. And I don't think Paul means first, second, third. He means of most importance, chiefly. This is the main thing. Why do the Jews have an advantage? Well, There's much advantage in what they have. And the first reason, the primary reason, the big point of it, is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the insider knowledge. That's the difference. They have the oracles of God and the Gentiles don't. You can't say that's not an advantage. That is an advantage. But they weren't all faithful to it. So I'm going to give a little spoiler here and, and tell you what he's implying there is The advantage that they have is a message that points forward to God's way of salvation. The oracles point forward. But if you don't see how they point forward and you only do what they say but not how they point, it's not an advantage. Well, many people were unfaithful to the oracles. They have the oracles, but they weren't faithful to it. So here's the second question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God, it's not a dumb argument. He's imagining someone going, okay, God gave this group special knowledge, but that special knowledge, they weren't able to attain to it. They weren't able to really hold it up. So for, it, for our context, maybe somebody grew up in church, but the more they came to church, the more they learned about stuff they have to do. The more they came to Sunday school, the more they learned about stuff not to do. Every time they heard a sermon, more sin was exposed, right? It kept getting harder and harder and impossible to do it, and then they became faithless because they didn't live up to it. So what if some were unfaithful? Doesn't that mean that they were unfaithful? And therefore, God is unfaithful, and their argument is he chose this group to give them something special, and it didn't work. And God is going to punish them now. He gave them something that this group didn't have. He gave them a privilege, and now he's going to punish them even though they had that privilege. Doesn't that make him a faithless God? Doesn't that make him an unfaithful God, i.e., an unrighteous God? Isn't that messed up of God to do that? That's not a dumb question. And I just want to pause here real quickly uh, and remind you as a church There are no dumb questions here. This is not a church where we're like, don't ask questions, just listen to the sermon and do it. I want you to ask questions. The person that doesn't ask questions is not thinking. That's a good question. God didn't give this group something special. He gave this group something special, and now what we learned in Romans 2 is his wrath is on that group. Does that make him unfaithful? Verse 4, he's not like, eh, I'm not sure. By no means, right? By no means is God faithless. Let God be true. If everyone were a liar, God would still be true. As it is written, this is a quote from Psalm 51 when David confessed his sin with Bathsheba. And David is basically telling God, you're right. Your judgment upon me is right. It's correct. It's true. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you were judged. In other words, is God's judgment on sin correct? Yes. Yes. David's Psalm 51 was not, but she was bathing on the rooftop. But I couldn't help it. But Uriah was a jerk. But I thought I had a privilege. Excuses. Excuses is not repentance. And David is saying, you're right. You got me. I'm wrong. And if you judge me, you're correct when you judge. No one can point the finger at God and be like, you weren't supposed to judge in that instance. He is right to do it. So Paul's argument is, yes, he gave this group a special insider knowledge, but they didn't live up to it, and if he didn't punish them, that would be faithless. But his wrath is actually faithful because there are wrongs being done and they need to be made right. That's justice, and God is a just God. God is not a just God. If he's like, meh, you're my favorite, so don't worry about sin. Okay, When you were in middle school, And the teacher's pet could kind of get away with stuff. But if you did it, bang, you got the punishment. Bang, you got detention. But the teacher's pet didn't. How did that feel? Did that feel like a just teacher? Did you love that teacher? Did you want to hang out with that teacher? No, that teacher's a jerk. Because the teacher's playing favorites. God doesn't do that. This group, that group, when they're guilty, they're guilty. God is a just God. That doesn't make him faithless. It makes him faithful. Faithful and true. When you read Revelation 19, and it's Jesus riding that white horse, and he's carrying the sword, and he's the king of kings, what is his name as he rains judgment down on the wicked? Faithful and true. Not unrighteous. Not unfaithful, but faithful. This third question is verses 5 through 6. Here's the next question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... Okay, so the the person arguing with Paul, the imaginary person arguing with Paul, is tracking with Paul, right? Okay, Paul, God is righteous to inflict wrath. And so because God is righteous in doing it, inflicting judgment shows how righteous God is because he's such a just God. So if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us because of our unrighteousness? He's pressing the point of the previous question. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? In other words, if he doesn't judge this group, he can't judge that group. And this is a primary problem that we have. When we look at the world and we see how dark it is and how sinful it is, and we're like, them, they, them, kill them, judgment, Lord, come, ride that white horse. Yes, it's all about them because of their big sins, because of their brazen sins, because of how loud their sinning is, because they don't care, because they shake their fist at God, and am like, ooh, you're going to get it when daddy comes, right? It's always pointing fingers out there, which isn't wrong, but we never point the fingers in here, which is also wrong. And so what Paul is saying is if God doesn't demonstrate his righteousness by judging this group, then he can't demonstrate his righteousness by judging that group. In other words, because he's not that petty teacher that only punishes the students that aren't his favorite, because he's just, he either judges everybody or judges nobody. And Paul is putting, like, kind of, again, that checkmate on the Jewish person because that Jewish person could not conceive of a world, a universe, a God who doesn't punish wickedness. You can't just let people get away with it. Their entire story was built on God judging wickedness. And a lot of it was directed outside of Israel, God judging the Egyptians, God judging the Assyrians, God judging, right? But God also judged inside Israel as well. And he's saying God is fair and he's not partial and he judges both groups at once. Fourth question. Verse 7. If through my lie, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner and... On top of that, why not do evil that good may come? Now, that's interesting. This person is saying, if we're unrighteous and God has to judge that, and God judging unrighteousness shows how righteous he is, well, then why don't we just sin more to show how righteous he is, huh? His answer there is, you're an idiot, and I'm not giving you an answer. I'm not going to waste Scripture answering that question. Because look what he says. He says in verse 8, Why not do evil that good may come? That's a cool idea, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying. They misunderstand what I've been teaching, and it's slanderous to say that I've been teaching that, Paul says. Their condemnation is just. Full stop, moves on to the next question. You get what's coming to you if you think, Yeah, let's do evil. Let's do more evil so God is more righteous. Right? Like You care about God's righteousness? You're doing evil because you love evil, man. Stop it. Paul's been pretty respectful up to here. There are good questions, there are good questions, okay, we, we need to engage, but some questions do expose that we are not asking the question because we're after knowledge, we're asking the question because we're being disrespectful, and Paul cuts it off right there. Of course, the context of everything that Paul's teaching answers the question, we know why, because unrighteousness is unrighteous, because it's unbecoming of someone who is with the Lord. Now his final question, his fifth question, goes back up to where we started. Well, then what, what advantage does the Jew have then? So the insider group, you started, Paul, by saying the insider group has an advantage. They have the inside knowledge. But now you're like, but he's going to judge them. He's righteous for doing it. And if he doesn't do it, then he can't judge anybody. Then there is no justice in the world. There is no revelation. There are no better days ahead. Well, then we're back to the first question. What advantage does the Jew have then? He's like, well, ultimately, none. which is a surprise because at first he said, well, much in every way in verse 2, and then now he's like, no, nothing. Well, which one is it? It's a yes and no. Sometimes you've been asked a question, and you think about it, is it yes or no, and you start your answer by saying, well, yes and no. Does that mean you don't have an answer? No, it means this is complicated. His yes is, yes, they have an advantage. They have the promises of God, and the Gentiles didn't. They're both condemned, but only one of them had the message of hope. They both had the bad news, but only one of them had the good news. That's an advantage. But it's not an advantage if you don't receive it. It's not an advantage if you don't let the oracles of God take you where you're supposed to go. Is it advantageous to come to church and listen to sermons? Yes. Why? You're being exposed to hope that outside there you don't get. You're not going to get hope watching Hollywood movies or reading random books. But you can come to church again and again and again, collect sermons under your belt, I heard this one, I heard this one, I heard that one, and not respond to the sermons. And therefore, it was of no advantage to you. You had an advantage and you didn't take it. And that actually becomes a disadvantage. Listen to what he says. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So in other words, you had the out and you didn't take the out, and that's why you're in the same bucket as the Gentiles. At the end of the day, it's not having information. It's not having special revelation that saves you. It's doing what that information told you to do. It's getting to the point where it's telling you to go those promises that push forward to Jesus Christ and the good news that we have in Him, if you don't take that, it didn't matter how often you were exposed to truth. And so if we're tying this together with our own situations, should you praise God that at least your unbelieving spouse still comes to church? Should you praise, should you raise your children in the church, even though a lot of the children that were raised in your family, that were raised in the church, ended up leaving the church? Should we just be like, well, forget it then. There is no advantage to coming to church. No, there is the advantage. Exposure to the promise is the advantage. But we don't go, well, they grew up in church for all their lives. Why are they behaving that way? I'm so confused. You're confused because you thought bringing them to church was salvation. No. It's exposure to the hope of salvation. But they have to accept it and bear fruit. So Paul is not saying, Jews, that's so dumb, they might as well have not had Scripture. No, back to verse 2, much in every way they had advantage. It is your job as a parent to expose your child to as much Scriptural truth as possible, because that is an advantage and that is a privilege. But it doesn't save them. And so he says, in the end of it, For Jews who don't embrace the promises, for Jews who think that law-keeping is what's going to save them, for Jews that think they're better than the Gentiles, this group thinks they're better than this group because they're saved and this group isn't saved, they completely misunderstand the difference between the two groups. The difference is insider knowledge, not salvation. They both are judged. They both have a problem with judgment. So he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, And now he gives you a a smattering of Old Testament texts that he puts together just to prove the case to the Jew. Like your own oracles that you don't listen to tell you this. Check it out as he puts it together. None is righteous. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The Jews would agree with that, but they always saw that as them out there. And Paul's like, don't you understand? It's you too. It says no one. No one is righteous, no, not one, even the man standing up here preaching to you right now. I deserve death because I'm wicked apart from Christ. This is all enveloping. No one is allowed out. No, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We have entire churches and movements built on seeker sensitivity. <laughs> Are they really seekers? If the only way to get them here is to raffle off an iPad, they're seeking stuff. They're not not seeking God. No one seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Even if they started with truth, they turn aside from it. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. You're like, wow, that's not me. Have you ever lied? Boom. Boom. That's you. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet swift to shed blood. Now he's broadening it to just how humanity uh, behaves outside of God's mercy. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's really easy for the Jew to think about the Egyptians and to think about the Assyrians and to think about the Persians and the Edomites and all those people out there that shed blood and everything like that. Have you ever read 1 and 2 Kings? First and Second Chronicles? Back up to First and Second Samuel? What, what was their kingdom like? Zero bloodshed? David's own family killing each other. Brother rapes sister. Brother kills brother. Brother tries to kill father. It's not about out there, no one. Insider knowledge, outsider knowledge. In fact, to ramp it up, the insider knowledge, if you don't take it to its promise, the insider knowledge actually disadvantages you in a sense, because all it did was expose just how wicked we are, and you have a better sense of it exposed to Scripture than someone who didn't grow up in church. They don't know better. We know better. Who's the guiltier party? Check the next paragraph, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's this group. Those who have the law, they have the special privilege of that knowledge. So whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Everybody knows these guys are guilty he's saying when you're under the law, the law exposes just how you are in the same boat. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The more you learn about who God is, how holy he is, how righteous he is, the more you learn how not like God you are. That's why preaching what Scripture actually says does not scratch itching ears. And if you came in here this morning, you're like, I want to just be pumped up for this week. I just want to learn how special I am. I want self-affirmation. And already in your mind, you're like, I'm not coming back. I hope you come back. Because what we need is the actual medicine that addresses our real malady. And your real malady isn't that you don't affirm yourself enough. If you think that there's hope in yourself affirming yourself, your hope is in yourself and you already think you're better off than you actually are. What you need is the oracles of God to expose that you don't have that power and you don't have that strength. Because those who have the insider knowledge learn to greater extent what sin actually is, how ugly it is, how pervasive it is, and how utterly plague-stricken we are by it. And he's forcing them to stop thinking about guilt as something that's a they-them problem, but guilt as something that's a me-mine problem. No matter how much special knowledge you've been given. And so knowledge that is an advantage turns to knowledge of sin, to which they will be held to a greater judgment than the Gentiles, which he doesn't say explicitly here, but other scriptures bear that out that I don't have time for now. Now he turns a corner, and he turns to this righteousness of God idea. Now he gets into good news, and it's it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, that game you used to play when you were kids, where you would clasp each other's fingers and bend each other's hands back, and whoever said mercy first loses. Uncle, we used to say mercy. Some years ago, I don't want to spend too much time, but it is a little humorous. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy I know who's into, you know, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and stuff, and I just kind of off the cuff was like, I'd love to just learn basics. He's like, let's do it. I'm like, for real? Like, yeah, I'll bring the mats. So I opened up the church. We actually came here. We put the mats downstairs. this is years ago, right? We could put the mats downstairs. You remember we rented the church out to a Korean church. And uh, this Korean pastor, Pastor Lee, was always with the nicest suit and tie, prim and proper, you know. He showed up one day, and he sees two dudes wrestling on a mat downstairs. And I'm like, we just paused, and he's like, what are you doing? (laughs) He'd never heard of it. We're like, jujitsu? He's like, who, what? I'm like, you know, jujitsu? He's like, no, show me. And he's just standing there. He's like, show me. I'm like, I don't have anything to show you. I don't know anything. (laughs) It was awkward. (laughs) Here's here's the point. The guy I was wrestling with, whatever you want to call that, jiu-jitsu, he had technical knowledge. I had none. And I was using brute force to try to submit to, to, you know, beat him into submission, not with strikes. Uh, A few minutes into it, I realized this guy can't beat me. If I want to put him in a headlock, boom, headlock. If he grabs me, I just, I just peel it off. Five minutes in, 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, I can't get him to submit. And no matter how hard I pray, I remember one time I have my, I'm like, am I going to kill this dude? Like, give up, man. You know, and I'm just squeezing really hard until I'm just tired and I can't anymore. And then he pins me with a technical move. Now, here's what Paul is doing here. You think because your insider knowledge, you have what it takes to get somewhere, and he's going to go chapter one, chapter two, chapter three to get you to say, I can't do it. He wants you to say mercy, because it's not until you realize you don't have the stuff that you're ready for the good news. I wasn't ready to learn jiu-jitsu until I learned that headlocking and pressing him and pushing, you know, it just doesn't work. Then I was ready to start learning some stuff. But then I was so embarrassed we never did it again. And so, sadly to say, I still have no technical knowledge. <laughs> Here comes Paul with the good news. He's beaten us down. He's put us in the corner. He's checkmated us. He's got us to the point where we have completely exhausted ourselves. Insider knowledge, no insider knowledge. You, have, you, you deduce who God is from the mountains and nature. Or you grew up in a place where you had exposure to the oracles of God. You still lose. Well, then, is there any way to win? Yes. Yes, God steps in. You're not the hero of your story. God is. That's why self-affirmation doesn't work, but God affirmation does. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So they had the advantage of the oracles, but they missed that the oracles point forward to this big news that is now being manifested, is now being shown Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Can this group get it? Yes. Can this group get it? Yes. What if I grew up in church? Yes. What if I never heard of Matthew? Yes. What if my family's not Christian? Yes. What if I've done a lot of sinning? Yes. What if I'm completely wretched? Yes. Because it is is not based on your righteousness. This is good news for how many people, verse 22? All who place faith in God's provision of Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. Here's where we get the famous verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All there is this group and that group. Insider knowledge, outsider. All have fallen short and fall short of, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, as a gift. If somebody shows up at your doorstep and hands you a gift, and you're like, oh, I'll be right back. I'll get my checkbook. Is that disrespectful? Because you're turning it into not a gift. Gift means free. Otherwise, it's not a gift. It can't be something that we earned. It can't be something we said, you know, I was strong enough. I had enough musculature. I had enough strength. I had enough power. I couldn't do it. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation there is a big word that means to satisfy. But the big word is helpful because if you just put satisfy, it sounds like He's emotionally satisfied. Like He's emotionally gratified by either spilling the blood of the guilty people or spilling the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm just bloodlust. And that's not not it. If you look up actually the word satisfy in Webster's Dictionary, there's three definitions at least. Last I checked, the first two definitions have nothing to do with emotion or what makes you happy. It has to do with contractual obligation, satisfying a debt, satisfying a contract, There's something outstanding that needs to get fixed. There's something broken that needs to be made right. There's an injustice that needs to be made right. And so God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction for that wrath, the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ. And we receive that by faith. You believe it. You don't just believe that it's historically true. You believe that this transaction is effective for your life, so that you can receive salvation. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, now, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Quickly, how did He pass over former sins? It doesn't mean in the past, in the Old Testament, He was like, eh, sin, no big deal. And then now, now, He's like, "psych." I'm serious about sin. That's not true. You read the Old Testament, you find that out pretty quickly. God was always very serious about sin. So in what sense did He pass over them in His forbearance? In the sense that none of those animals that were sacrificed ever propitiated a thing. It didn't. What they did was they served as a picture of what would propitiate God's wrath. And now he's showing how propitiation actually is going to work. All those pictures in the Old Testament, all those oracles were pointing to this real deal. Verse 26, that's how he showed righteousness now at the present time so that we, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word just there reflects back on all the previous chapter 3 and chapter 2. God is just to judge. He's just in doing it. And you're like, oh man, I guess, I guess I'm in trouble. God is right to judge me. Now you get the good news that God is the justifier who makes you just so you can escape judgment. Right when you're thinking, is there no way to be justified if the law doesn't work? If not having the law doesn't work and having the law doesn't work, what works? There's only one way for you to be justified. Paul is not arguing, don't worry about justification because justification is impossible. He's telling you justification is impossible for you, but it's possible with God. God does it in a very particular way. He does it through the propitiation by Jesus' blood, so that when we receive that propitiation by faith, we escape the wrath that we should have upon us. Well, then finally, final paragraph, starting in verse 27. Here's another question, actually kind of picking up on that question and answer that he started out with then what becomes of our boasting? Can this group boast that they grew up in the synagogue? Can any of us boast that we grew up in church, boast that we knew Scripture, boast that we had things memorized before we encountered Christ? No, it's excluded. Can we boast that we kept the law? Can we boast that we did good things? No, it's excluded. And he says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We hold that one is justified, any person that's justified is justified how? By faith apart from works of the law. You're like, but last week you said works are important. They are. Notice, he doesn't say we're justified by faith instead of works of the law. We're justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's not saying works of the law have been deleted. He's just saying that's not the way to get there. You get there somewhere else. That doesn't make uh, works unnecessary. Like if your child went up to you and like, does does doing house chores make me your child? No, you're my child even if you don't do house chores. Oh, so then the conclusion is chores don't matter. No. By virtue of being a child, you are responsible for the house that is your inheritance. And so by virtue of being in, you have certain responsibilities. But you're not in because of those responsibilities. So Paul's not saying, forget the law. No, the law is important. But you need to know that the law is not how you got in. How did you get in the end of verse 25, or the end of verse 27? You got in by faith, the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? In other words, that's the only way he can include this group. If it had to be only through the law, only this group can get in. How, how can this group get in? through faith, yes, of the Gentiles also. Verse 30, since God is one. In other words, these aren't separate groups. They're one group together. God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do we overthrow the law? No, we uphold it. Honestly, this this confuses everybody. I'm talking scholars, academics, people who write commentaries, whole groups, whole denominations. They're just like, this is is a big point of confusion. Because in our mind, if law matters, then we have to be able to gain God somehow through doing stuff. But then this other group over here is like, "No, no, 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 law is not how you do it. And so they end up going, law doesn't matter. It's just grace. It's not just grace. Grace produces something in us. Grace changes us so that we now uphold the law. If we go, oh, I've been changed by God, let me overthrow the law, I don't care about the law that God has said, then you haven't really been changed. All you're gonna do is keep an outward version of what God says to do, just like the Jews who were circumcised physically, but not spiritually. And he's like, it doesn't matter. You can be someone who doesn't have the outward sign, but your inside, inward reality is there, the faith that you have. That's what circumcision was about the entire time, pointing forward. Again, pointing forward to this good news in Jesus Christ. So we don't want to say, God is just and the justifier because once He makes us right, we don't any longer care about what God says do and don't do. God is not about do's and don'ts. That's a mean version of God. We serve a God of grace. Who doesn't care about do's and don'ts? He just wants you to be you. That is a very skewed version of God. And it's not the gospel. The gospel is God is very much concerned with good works. He's so concerned with good works that he's going to judge us for not doing them. Then realizing none of us can do them. The pastor can't. The elders can't. The deacons can't. The greeters can't. None of us in this room can do it. Right. Well, then what hope is there? Not hope for God to go, you know what? You know what the solution is? Who cares about rules? I was wrong before. No, I care about rules. You can't keep the rules. Therefore, I'm going to bring the rule keeper, the one who puts on flesh to fulfill the role that we couldn't fill, to do it in ways that we could never do it, and then take the wrath that is due the person who couldn't do it and put that wrath on the person who does do it. Substitution. But it doesn't end there. Because once by faith you've received that redemption, you've received by faith that propitiation is made for you, now go uphold the law. Go read the Old Testament and learn how the Old Testament talks to you about God's character, who God is, what He's like, and that He cares about people. All those rules you read in the Old Testament, you're like, I don't get how this is relevant. Well, dig a little harder because it is relevant. I'll give you one brief example because we're coming up on time here. And all the Bears fans are going to get mad at me. Uh, that's not true of this church. I don't know why I said that. Um, remember in the Old Testament, it's like, hey, man, if you've got a roof and you've got people that hang out on that roof and you, you watch your baseball games on that roof and you do grill barbecue on that roof and you don't have a fence around that roof, a parapet, and somebody falls off your roof, you're in trouble. We're not supposed to go, parapet, I don't even know what that is. Must have been a Jew thing. You think, what is God's heart there? The top two commandments are love God, love neighbor. Which one of those does that fit under? Love neighbor. Because you're like, hey, come over to my house. Hey, come hang out on this rooftop with me. But you didn't provide a protection for them. You're, you're maybe giving them wine, who knows what's going on. You're, you're having fun, too many people up there. And someone falls over. That's your fault. I didn't push him. I didn't make him come over, right, by, by virtue of the invitation, the guest is trusting that you are providing at least what is basic and necessary for someone to have a good time and not die, bro. Is that relevant? You live in a neighborhood, and that sidewalk portion right in front of your house is your responsibility. Everyone else salts their sidewalk, shovels it, and you're like, meh. Trespass if you dare, I guess. I'm not doing it. Then someone slips and falls. What does the Bible have to say about that? That's Old Testament law that tells you what to think about that. It was within your means and within your responsibility to salt that sidewalk. And when that little kid was trying to get to their bus stop in the morning and fell and cracked their head and the rest of their life is changed because of your negligence, it is your fault. Old Testament is relevant. Paul is not saying God saves you to not care about rules. God saves you so you can do it, so that you don't need someone from the town hall meeting to come knock on your door. Hey, notice you don't saw it. No, but you think of it every time you see kids walking. You're like, I care for them. It's loving God and loving neighbor, and that's what should drive you to do it. So Paul makes, at pains, goes at length to say the law matters. The law matters so much that God is going to judge us for not doing it. Well, then how do we get out of the judgment? through propitiation by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's not how we get out of law-keeping. That's how we get out of judgment for not keeping it perfectly. As we continue to press through Romans, we're going to see how God uses His grace and His mercy to transform us, to renew our minds, to make us more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That's why we come to church. That's why we go to CFC courses. That's why we go to growth groups. That's why we spend time devotionally in the Bible Not to try to earn God's love, but to live it out. I hope that if you're in here this morning and you are resting on your own goodness, you're banking that day when there's judgment and we stand before God, you're banking on being better than your neighbor. You're banking on being better than those people out there that um, are so brazenly evil and wicked. I hope you're seeing now that that does not save you. It doesn't save me. It doesn't save any of us. But we, by faith, accept this propitiation that God has provided. We're blown away, away by that fact. And it makes us care more about what God thinks and what God says we're supposed to do and don't do, not less. We grow up into this upholding of the law because it's God's words, it's God's truth, and it's beautiful even if we don't understand that at first. A parapet around the house, let's unpack it a little bit, and we'll see how it's God revealing His heart to us to live lives in a way that image Christ's Son to a world that still doesn't have the good news. Let's pray together.